A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor at Prospect Magazine, and today we're going to be tackling the important question of whether China's growth engine is stalling. And I'm delighted to be welcomed by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue and author of an excellent feature for the most recent issue of Prospect, which we headlined Xi Jinping's Reckoning, and Rana Mitter, professor of history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford and author of China's Good War. So first of all, Isabel, what is Xi Jinping's current stance on the economy and why did his recent conference speech spook the markets in the way that it did? Well, the conference speech, to tackle that question first, spooked the markets because it seemed to be an affirmation that politics um, were, were going to triumph over, over the economy. It was partly the appointment of the team who were uh, perceived, at least in the outside, as as party loyalists and personal loyalists to Xi Jinping, uh, not in itself a particularly good thing in an autocratic system. Um, and it, it was partly the content of the speeches and the, and the affirmation of the importance of politics over, over the economy. And at that point, also, a reaffirmation of zero COVID, which, of course, has been unscrambled since. But all of that combined to cause a bit of a panic in the markets, as, as you know, pretty much as the conference finished. And just briefly explain how this fits into the story of China over the last 10 years. I mean, what has changed? I think, really, well, I, I'd probably go back a bit further. We've had several decades of very rapid growth, particularly since China do- joined the WTO. And, and I, there, is, there has been a sense in China from 1989 onwards that if people stayed out of politics, they would be rewarded by rapid growth. Essentially, stay out of politics and we will make you rich or you will have the opportunity to become rich. And China has talked a lot about lifting people out of poverty and so on. And certainly living standards improved enormously. The the difficulty is that once that catch-up phase is over, and we've seen this repeatedly in this kind of economy, and particularly in fellow Asian tigers, actually, then there is a natural slowdown and either an economy becomes cleaner, smarter, moves up the value chain and so on, or it languishes in what's called the middle income trap and most economies do. So China has got to the point where the economy has a natural slowdown. That's not a surprise. 
but it's had a series of shocks, including, of course, the pandemic. And the strategy for avoiding the middle income trap has got some got some way to go. Plus, the the driver of the of the economy, the main driver over many years, has been a pattern of borrowing to build, and particularly borrowing to build residential housing as well as infrastructure. And that is completely played out at this point. It's now become a problem of unsold apartments and a huge debt overhang on the economy. So all of this, you know, is coming together and and it is very much a, a headache for the promise of continued prosperity. Rana, how does it look to you in the sweep of the history of China that, that you know so well? I think that this current moment is certainly very serious for all the reasons that Isabel has outlined. I don't think it's a transformational moment in a revolutionary sense. So in other words... A lot of my time is spent looking at the late 1940s as a historian, a time when China had a real revolution, when lords were being attacked in the fields and people were essentially fleeing out of the country or to other cities to try and escape the oncoming revolutionary armies. I don't think we're remotely in that sort of situation today. Instead, it is rather more that sort of slowing down, which has the seeds of a potential decline in it, which could either be planted and essentially become worse, or else actually, in some ways, I think, be countered. I would add one other factor, which is, in a sense, a historic viewpoint uh, to, to what Isabel said, because I think I you know, pretty much agree with everything she said, which is that over time, over the next period of, let's say, 10 to 20 years, China's demographics, which are really well known to be orienting China towards a future where it's going to have a much smaller working age population, largely as a result of the outcome of the famous one-child policy, which ran for 35 years. Well, this year, the statistics have shown that actually that process is accelerating even faster than institutions such as the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences had realised. And that's going to make the long-term difference. So let's take a particular item that Isabel mentioned, property. And she said, you know, this borrow-to-build model is, is out the door. It's out the door for a lot of reasons, but one of them is, of course, there's going to be fewer people to live in all these new cities that are being thrown up in the, in the west of China. There's a limit to the number of people you can either persuade or coerce to come off the rural areas and go and live in these apartment blocks. And that's what's going to have a wider effect, going back to the economy, in terms of what China purchases in the world. If, for the last few years, there's been you know, huge amounts of attention to the fact that concrete, iron, rare metals, all these sorts of things, China's been buying up and possibly dominating some of these markets. Well, the room to do that or the need to do that is actually going to reduce in the next few years because China will just be building less because it's got fewer people to build for. And that will have a huge effect on areas like commodity markets as well. So in historic terms, I would look at this as a slowdown moment in which China has the choice to a, in some ways turbulent, but nonetheless probably manageable transition or else a moment which, if it isn't handled well, could lead to protests of the sort that we saw about COVID in just the last couple of weeks. I was going to get on to the, the mood about COVID and, and more generally, and I, I don't know, Isabel, you've been studying Ch- Chinese public opinion for, for a long time. And I, I don't know how easy it is or to measure, but if you had to sort of disentangle disenchantment and anger about the zero COVID policy with a more general dismay about the drift of the way that that China's going. How would you do that? And can you talk about the significance of the the government's U-turn on on COVID? Yes. I mean, look, in terms of measuring Chinese 
public opinion, and I'm sure Rana would agree. I mean, we can see a lot of symptoms, but quite how well the body politic is or isn't is rather is rather hard to gauge, just because we don't have the tools and we don't have the access at this point at all. But clearly, those protests, which were widespread and very interesting, did spook the party. Uh, there were signs that the party was looking at relaxing zero COVID before those those protests, but I think that certainly speeded it up. And if you look at who was protesting about what, I think it's worth a little triage, because certainly the party has done some triage. So you have ordinary householders who were just fed up of being locked down, of not being able to work in many cases. You have migrant workers who haven't had incomes for a long time. You've had businesses that have been going bust. You've had people who are simply weary of the constant testing and the limitations imposed on daily life. And when you got to Omicron, it became increasingly evident, because Omicron is, is so much more infectious or contagious, that it was failing in any event. So the prospect was that if we were to continue on that path, the entire country was going to have to be locked down, because Omicron, was it just spreads. So, so there were a lot of reasons to tip into a different policy. So then you look at, OK, how do we, how do we approach the question of protest and the question of, of zero COVID? So as far as the householders are concerned and the people who are fed up with being pushed around by big whites and people in hazmat suits whose faces you can't see, the lifting of those restrictions is certainly a relief and will answer a lot of that discontent. But then you have the university students who, being Chinese university students, took advantage of the occasion to produce long and thoughtful essays on, on politics and history and political reform. And then you had the people on the streets who were holding up blank sheets of paper or who were referencing a banner that had been placed on a prominent bridge, a flyover bridge in Beijing, in advance of the party congress. And that banner called for essentially an end to dictatorship, an end to lockdown, an end, you know, and more freedoms. It called for pretty much the kind of liberal democratic freedoms that you would want. It disappeared with the, you know, within a few hours, but it was widely photographed. It's, it's widely recognised and references to it started to come up in those protests. So you have a mix of people and, and what does the party do? It, it, it relieves the pressure on the householders it sends the students home for an early vacation, so they don't they're not gathering and you know, they're not giving each other ideas. And you flood the street with security and you go after the people who you can identify who have been leading the sort of chant and response, the the political slogans, the demands for an end to party dictatorship. And that sort of triage for the time being at least will certainly, I think, deal with the issue. But what it reveals is a depth of discontent with political conditions. And that is a longer-term question that the party is going to have to face. And we are in a particularly authoritarian moment, at least in recent history. You know, this, the pendulum has swung from the relative liberalism of, say, 15, 20 years ago to the relative authoritarianism now. And a lot of the protest was about exactly that. So how the party handles that will be very interesting to see. How unusual were these kind of protests, Rana? And do they show a weakening of grip by the by the Central Communist Party and Xi Jinping himself? In some senses, Alan, they're not unusual at all. They're actually every year 
thousands, even possibly tens of thousands, of what are usually logged as uh, incidents, which basically means people protesting, usually at a very local level, about something that has outraged them. One example that comes to mind, because it happens so frequently, is the forcible seizure by local governments of land. And Isabel knows a tremendous amount about this too, but, you know, basically the battle over which bit of land gets designated under what kind of identity, urban or rural, the price that you can get for it, and how those who have lived and worked on it are essentially expropriated from their land. It's one of those stories that actually has a lot of historic resonance, because that's one of the things that, of course, brought the communists to power. So it's rather ironic that it's their party these days who, in some cases, are essentially at the local level, forcing people off the land. And that does create protests on a regular basis. But the type of bigger, more organised protests that we saw a couple of weeks ago, that is different and unusual. It does remind me of one thing. In the mid-1990s, 1995 specifically, actually, I was living in a city in northern China called Shenyang, which is basically at the heart, or was at the heart, of China's industrial rust belt. There's not actually that much of the industry that was there left these, these days, more than 25 years later. But it was actually very interesting to be there, because when walking through some of the more industrial parts of the city... All these people were gathered and were holding posters and shouting and making it very clear they were very unhappy. Well, I didn't fully understand at the time, although later when I you know, saw, saw context that other people had done in, in analysis, I, I understood more, that these were people who were protesting about the loss of their jobs. The mid-1990s saw the essentially the privatisation of many of the biggest and old, most old-fashioned of the state-owned enterprises in places like northeast China, the equivalent of places like you know, Michigan, Detroit and so forth, essentially having to, to retool. And the slightly unholy alliance of the late President Jiang Zemin and the then head of Goldman Sachs, Hank Paulson, who of course went on to become US Treasury Secretary, they would almost pretty much go as a kind of two-for-one deal around China privatising stuff, which led to a lot of people going in the streets and saying, what happens to our job, what happens to our welfare rights, what happens to our future. Now, since then, I mean, basically that was dealt with through the methods that, again, have become very commonplace from which you arrest the people, as Isabel said, who are probably most directly connected with the, the protests. And then you do a bit of wider social change, things like welfare provisions, to try and make sure that the wider issue is damped down a bit. And I'd say that's really what seems to have happened with the COVID changes last week. It's clear that these days, of course, with the level of face recognition technology that artificial intelligence has given the Chinese state, it's been possible in some cases to identify people even behind masks, it would appear, and basically round them up. But in a wider sense, it's clear that the demands of the protesters to get the zero COVID policy reversed are being implemented at breakneck speed. So much so, I mean, I, I spoke recently to someone in Beijing, I obviously won't say more than that, who actually hasn't been vaccinated and is really quite worried about this new regulation because they think that uh, they might get infected having, you know, had no preparation time for this, uh, for this new policy. I think also there's one other thing which is fascinating about what happened last week. We know what the input was, which was these protests. We know what the outcome was, which was the very rapid and in some ways quite hasty change of this policy, even in the middle of a cold midwinter when the virus were no doubt spread. We'd all love to know what happened in the middle. Who went and had a conversation with whom? Was Xi Jinping confronted by members of the Politburo Standing Committee saying... Comrade Xi, sorry about this, we know you love this policy, but this really isn't going to work out, we have to change something. Whatever happened, whoever spoke to whom, the policy changed very quickly, showing, in my opinion, that the flexibility of the Chinese Communist Party with regard to its key task, which is making sure it has an absolute monopoly on power, was demonstrated quite slickly, quite effectively, 
by all those changes a couple of weeks ago. So short term, it looks like a big policy change, certain loss of face. And that's true. Longer term, I think they may have managed to shore themselves up in a situation which might have been heading towards something much more dangerous for the party. So, Rana, sticking with you, I suppose the question is how unnerved the rest of us should be. I mean, we've we've had sort of 20 or 30 years of being being accustomed to extreme instability in the former Soviet Union, but uh, feeling that, that the lid was pretty firmly on the situation in China. But But if... Things are getting rockier, rocky there and could get rockier. How unnerved should we be about the implications? I think an unstable China is potentially bad for the rest of the world because for a very long time, for instance, an awful lot of investment companies, mutual funds, all these sort of pension funds would put a lot of their funds in China on the grounds that it was a growth market and that things there were fairly stable and reliable. The thing, though, that has actually scared most of those sorts of investors and by extension the rest of the world is probably more what Isabel has mentioned in the beginning, which is political unpredictability. In other words, the idea that political and ideological imperatives may overcome what is seen as a sensible and slow way to bring sustainable growth back to China. There are lots of engines of potential potential sustainable growth, which I think, to be fair, the party in some sense is committed to trying to move more towards renewable energy, trying to find ways to essentially boost the innovative but still relatively small technology sector in China. We, you know, These days people talk a lot about China tech and its amazing capacities. It's only about 4% of GDP in total so far, so there's a long way to go on that. All those things are manageable. I think the fear would come more from something... Unexpected is not quite the right word, but certainly predictable but unwise. And I'm thinking here of something like an attempt to make a very sharp assault on Taiwan or an attempt to incorporate it in a process that doesn't involve long-term political negotiation. Something like a naval blockade would be an example of that. I don't actually think it's very likely in the near term. And one of the reasons for that, actually, is that I think that last week's COVID adventures have made the party realise that actually sudden, bold moves or very inflexible policies actually have some pretty unpredictable outcomes. And I think probably anything that throws the Taiwan situation into doubt would certainly have that sort of effect. But there's certainly, I think, overall, the world should be concerned about the fact that right now there is no obvious straight narrative path about where China wants to be next. It's okay, it's got rid of the zero COVID policy, but quite how this equates into dealing with the outbreak of more infection, particularly the next few months leading up to Chinese New Year, and then in the years beyond that, where it really wants to concentrate on growing the economy. Those sorts of areas are still very much in flux, not least because, as Isabel mentioned, a lot of the people who've been promoted to the top of the Politburo Standing Committee are actually national security types, whereas some of the people most associated with market economics, people like Wang Yang, Hu Chunhua, current Premier Li Keqiang, who's stepping down, are no longer seen to be in the driving seat, uh, or even partially in the driving seat of the economy, and their instinct towards a more market-oriented solution, dealing with issues such as youth unemployment, at the moment seems to be less at the forefront of the priorities for the party. Isabel, what, what's your answer to that question? How, how concerned should the rest of us be by what's going on? Um, for all the uncertainties that Ron has mentioned, I think the next, certainly the next six months is... is pretty unreadable. We don't know what the exit wave uh, of, of Omicron will be like, but there are, you know, there are lessons, for example, from Hong Kong, which are not particularly encouraging. Um, and that could continue to disrupt the economy. Even absent that, I think that, it, that 
quite how the economy i mean one of the one of the recent moves of the xi jinping government relatively recent moves of the xi, xi jinping government was a a policy called dual circulation and that was meant to insulate china from the vagaries of the of geopolitics essentially so less dependence on on export markets which were vulnerable to political pressure and more stimulus of the domestic economy because china has you know a continental sized economy and ought to be able to sustain itself but that hasn't really taken off uh, and again there may be many factors including obviously the pandemic which are affecting it but it's not really kicking in so we've got a sort of languishing economy at the moment and it's not terribly obvious how that's going to change i mean it might but as the economy languishes i think what we will what has been revealed by the recent protests is that people grow anxious and discontented about a number of material things and who do you blame in an autocratic state you sort of have to blame the government there isn't i mean the government has tried to divert blame away from itself and towards the united states in particular but also the united states as allies so japan south korea and it's trying to separate the european union from the united states strategically and that's a tactic to essentially to say that everything that goes wrong in china everything you're suffering from isn't the fault of the party it's the party that's defending you from worse and worse would be inflicted by by the wicked united states now you know that that might work for a while it certainly works with some sectors of the population but as again as we saw in in the protests it does not work for all sectors of the population because there is quite a substantial mistrust in some sectors of anything the government says you know they don't they know that news is censored they have enough access to alternative sources of news that they're very clear about that So politically it's going to take some fairly sensitive and intelligent management and we don't really know what the party plans in that regard but this has been a much more authoritarian government than and than than its predecessors and there is a risk that national security and the securitization of everything will simply dominate the discourse and we won't see recoveries of the kind that we want now what that means for china suppliers is obviously not great news there will be soft supply chains which continue to function certainly china's a big buyer on the global food market though that's getting more expensive but in terms of china being the kind of economic engine as we are looking at a potential global recession i i don't think that that is going to happen again and again not least because the last time there was a, a major global downturn the united states and china were in discussion about what to do about it they cooperated because they felt it was mutually beneficial that no longer applies so i think it's every man for himself at this point isabel and rana thank you so much for joining us thank you to the listeners for joining us if you enjoyed this podcast the new issue of prospect is out where you can read isabel's excellent piece It's a double winter issue. There's a fascinating interview with Joanna Lumley by Hella Pick. There's a piece by Raphael Baer on Russians in exile. The cover story is an examination of the question of whether the much heralded European insurance model of health 
is worth looking at, given that our own National Health Service is in a degree of trouble. So there's lots to read and rush out and buy a copy before Christmas or give somebody a subscription for Christmas. Goodbye. Listen out for the new edition of the Prospect Podcast next week. And while you're about it, why not subscribe to something slightly different, which is the Prospect Lives podcast, which is a monthly series of audio audio diario entries from the family of seven writers who write at the back of the magazine, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and former England cricket captain Mike Brearley. It's guaranteed to make you laugh or even cry, but it'll give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently from many of us. So just search Prospect Lives where you get your podcasts or click on the link on the show notes of this episode.